Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Oh, well, welcome to First Move. Great to be with you as always. And our focus remains the global reverberations caused by the dramatic collapse of two U.S. banks in as many days. We're talking Signature and SVB. After a turbulent Monday, however, across stock markets and particularly financials, things do look a touch more stable today. But despite the rush of regulatory support, questions still remain about the explicit safety of cash deposits. And that's just going to take some time to calm. For now, welcome improvement across the United States after Monday swings. The Dow, as you can see, attempting to rise after five days of declines. Today is all about the inflation complication for the Federal Reserve, too. And the good news is there's no surprises, at least, in today's consumer price data. We will discuss all the details shortly. For now, as you can see, Europe holding steady, too. Crucial to the tone and about turn pre-market for U.S. regional banks that saw their shares punished on Monday's session. They were down some 60 percent or more in some cases. Just take a look at those. A dramatic about turn for First Republic in particular there. So some real bounces, which is uh, at least at this stage, it's pre-market. We'll temper it, but it's good news. The word today that cash outflows at these institutions has also eased thanks to those deposit protections and the emergency loan access announced over the weekend, a contributing factor, no doubt. But of course, less cash on deposit at these banks and weakened balance sheets too means potential softer earnings and less ability to lend. Moody's is now putting six regional banks under review for potential ratings downgrades. Some might say it's a little like closing the barn doors after the horses have bolted, but uh, not me, of course. Shop losses over in Hong Kong and Tokyo. Banking stocks falling to their lowest level in three months. Also fresh fears about Credit Suisse over in Switzerland amid new accounting problems there. It shares falling to all-time lows. And it's not just about the stability of global banks today. It's about how the potential instability impacts central bankers' ability to curb inflation. That was a tongue twister. First up, of course, is the Federal Reserve and the importance of today's U.S. consumer price data. New numbers showing the CPI rising 6% year over year last month. So that's in line with expectations. Month over month, inflation in line as well. All this could give the Fed the breathing room to pause rate hikes next week, especially with the ongoing banking concerns. Claire Sebastian joins us now on this. The question is, Claire, does it? Because we can call this cooling based on the monthly data, but it's still lofty and it still poses a problem for the Federal Reserve, particularly in the face of the broader instability that we've seen for financials. Talk us through these numbers and what you think. Yeah, I think even though this is an annual deceleration in inflation, Julia, the eighth consecutive one, it does show, if you look into it, that inflation is persistent, and it is at 6%, still triple the Fed's target, of course. The biggest contributor overall was shelter. That accounted, uh, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, for 70% uh, of the month-on-month increase uh, in consumer prices. That is something, of course, that's essential. Housing is essential. You can't get away from that. So that is sticky. Food was up uh, as well, although energy did come down. The interesting thing, if you look at the charts, is that while it's clear 
uh, that core CPI, core consumer prices, appear to have peaked in the U.S. in the middle of last year and have been coming steadily down uh, since then. Uh, core CPI, if you strip out food and energy, it's a little less clear. That peak is a little less clear uh, if you look at that chart. So I think that's something that policymakers will be watching. Uh, and certainly, uh, if you look ahead to the Fed meeting, the Fed fund futures are now pricing in a higher probability uh, of a 25 uh, basis point, a quarter percent uh, rate rise next week when the Fed meets uh, than they were before we got those CPI numbers. So it's clear that the market thinks the Fed will still have reason to act despite the chaos that we're seeing, the, the contagion uh, potentially in the banking sector. And the idea perhaps that uh, that, 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 that crisis in the banking sector could essentially be doing some of the tightening for the Fed, as Larry Summers uh, has pointed out, that if banks are scared, they might stop lending. And that could tighten financial conditions in itself. All of that, of course, could play into the Fed's calculus next week. Yeah. And those are the different things that they've got to consider at this point. The financial instability, the fact that now they have to think about the banks and whether or not the instability that we've seen reduces lending, which to your point would be disinflationary and put some downward pressure on on inflation. But they also don't want to send the message that at the first sign of potential trouble, um, rate hikes don't go higher. Because to your mm. point, they have to do the work. The problem is, and it goes to the core of the issue in the financial sector, um, as high, the more high the interest rates go, the more pressure on the bank holdings of these banks and, and the bigger the on paper sort of balance sheet gaps that they have. Yeah, and I think, you know, all of this makes for a significant, I mean, they always have a, a balancing act of some in some ways, but this makes for a particular one at uh, this time, because as you say, it's these rapid rises in interest rates that essentially is at the heart of what went wrong with Silicon Valley Bank. They didn't uh, protect their balance sheets. Rates went up, that reduced the value of their holdings, uh, and they ended up in this situation, of course, uh, combined with the volume of uninsured deposits they had on their books. I think, look, the Fed has to concentrate on inflation. That is part of its dual mandate. Financial stability is a separate issue, so it needs to be seen to be doing that. I think it also has reputational issues to consider here. It is, of course, the bank regulator. It's launched its own review into its handling uh, of Silicon Valley Bank, its, its, its regulation and its supervision there. So it's facing questions on that side. But it does need to keep its eye on the ball when it comes to inflation. It's come this far, Julia. And while it's facing multiple calls from some quarters uh, to pause and wait, I think momentum is now mounting, certainly if you look at the markets, uh, for a quarter point rate rise next week. Yes. And, and one might also argue that the Federal Reserve does have macro policy and financial stability tools and could use them both at the same time. But I might send people off to sleep. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you so much for that. OK, and the blame game begins. And what contributed to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the tech sector is pointing the finger at CEO Greg Becker for presiding over the second biggest U.S. banking failure on record. Joining us now is Matt Egan. Clearly, balls were dropped. Talk to us about the blame game and, and where the finger pointing begins and ends. Well, Julia, uh, listen, we don't know all the facts yet, but there's plenty of blame to go around. I mean, where were the regulators here? Uh, in hindsight, there were some red flags. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank had rapid growth. It was highly exposed to one sector and it had a lot of uninsured deposits. Uh, also, you and Claire were just talking about the role of the Federal Reserve and these rate hikes. Um, but there's also a lot of questions about the mismanagement at Silicon Valley Bank itself. Um, I talked to a current employee at the bank who really pinned the blame on CEO Greg Becker, particularly how they broke the news last week 
um, that they needed to raise a lot of money. Rather than announcing um, you know, that they had a hole in their balance sheet, but it's being quickly filled, um, they sort of said, you know, we have this hole and we hope it's going to be filled pretty soon. Um, and that just led to this panic that we saw, this classic run on the bank. You know, on um, Thursday alone, $42 billion was yanked out of this bank. Um, that is a lot of money. It was a run on the bank. By the end of the day, by the close of business, they were um, negative. They had a negative cash balance. So they ran out of money. And so this employee at Silicon Valley Bank, he told me that this was, um, quote, absolutely idiotic what the CEO did in terms of how they announced this. On top of that, of course, was the mismanagement of the balance sheet in the first place. Now, I should note that the CEO has um, reportedly apologized um, internally to employees about what went down. But also, you know, I talked to uh, Yale professor Jeff Sonnenfeld, who is a preeminent expert on management issues. And he agreed that um, the CEO did mishandle this situation and, and that help led to um, all of this money coming out. Uh, Sonnenfeld put it this way. He said, quote, someone lit a match and the bank yelled fire. Hmm. That's an interesting uh, that's an interesting way to put it. Also interesting that you didn't sort of dig into the details of whether or not a rollback of regulation back in uh, in 2018 in some way played into this, too, which I think is also part of the politicization of this moment, which um, which I think you would expect. Uh, Matt will reconvene on that. Thank you so much for that report. Now, the fight against rising prices, of course, may not be over for the Federal Reserve, but there are questions now on whether the Fed may be forced to pause its rate hike regime to prevent more banks from collapsing, as Claire was just discussing. Let's get some context. My next guest says the shocking fall of Silicon Valley Bank should be a wake-up call to the banking industry and its regulators. Joining us now is former vice chair of the FDIC, Thomas Honig. He's also led the Kansas City Federal Reserve during the 2008 financial crisis. So fantastic to have you on the show. It doesn't get better than you in terms of experience of, of both the challenges that we face. But I want to tap into um, the FDIC hat part um, of your career, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. And just the short term sure in terms of response that we've seen based on what was announced for Silicon Valley Bank and for Signature Bank, can we now assume that if another bank fails, that uninsured depositors in that bank will be protected? Well, you cannot assume that because under the rules for uh, these situations, uh, the uh, Silicon Valley, Valley, Valley Bank was bailed out under the um, systemic exception, which says uh, you get the Fed and the FDIC and the Treasury agreeing that uh, this, if this bank were to fail and people were to lose money, that uh, you'd have a run on all the banks. And uh, that is a special exception. And then uh, otherwise, you need a, a legislation in order to do this because Dodd-Frank ended the ability to just bail out banks uh, as you please. So if another bank were to do this, uh, to, to find themselves in this position, they would have to use that special uh, exemption once again. And I think that would be probably uh, some, somewhat difficult uh, in this political environment. Now, whether they would need to is less clear because one of the other provisions that the Federal Reserve announced with this uh, bailout uh, was that banks could now... Uh, 
pledge their government securities that are underwater at par and receive uh, money from the Federal Reserve so that they have this liquidity source that uh, Silicon Valley was not able to get uh, under the circumstances. And so this should allow banks to uh, fund their liquidity needs much more effectively than uh, Valley Bank was able to do. Yeah, and the hope that that's enough of a support. But just so that my audience understand, what you're saying is in order to protect uninsured deposits in future bank failures, you're arguing that that bank again becomes systemic. And if you're arguing that that bank becomes systemic or is systemic, then arguably it should be uh, under the requirement to have broader stress tests every year, which many of these smaller banks simply aren't. And, and you can't have it both ways. So let's talk about the plan going forward. What should the FDIC do going forward? And, and how better actually can it predict these kind of uh, failures or, or at least material stresses as a result of what we're seeing in terms of market price action? This was clearly a unique case of tech sector decline, bond, government bond price decline. But we should be able to predict this better, surely. Well, when you are in an environment where you raise your interest rates by a factor of at least 25, you're going to have shocks. I mean, that just comes with the territory. And so they should they should understand that. And I'm sure that they're looking at banks across the country to see which banks might be most exposed to a liquidity crisis, given the rise in interest rates. But I think, you know, one of their difficulties now is that the they have worked very hard. They, the FDIC and the Fed and the Treasury have worked very hard to reassure people that their money is safe. So people now expect that even uninsured depositors will be bailed out going forward. And these uh, these agencies will have to um, clarify that or confirm that going forward. And I think one of the ways they're doing that is the facility that I described to you earlier. Now, yeah. the FDIC, the Fed, they're all looking at these banks uh, very carefully. Yeah, I mean, because we've argued it both ways now. We've said that they're either going to have to clarify that your uninsured deposits yeah. are safe or they aren't. So they actually do need to come out and say it, is your point. Well, they they are saying what they are saying, if you've noticed, is the banks, the banking industry is very sound. Uh, and and uh, they're hoping people rely Trust on me, that. Trust me, I'm now, a lawyer. I think, yes. I, well, yeah, you have to have a lawyer in here and they're going to have to write a memo saying that if another bank faces this, that it meets a systemic bailout. Now, let me tell you one other thing that is very clear. If it's a smaller bank, if it's a smaller bank and it fails, the FDIC can do what's known as a purchase and assumption transaction. Under a person is a purchase and assumption transaction, they sell it to a new owner, another bank that's sound. And in doing that, they sell all the deposits, insured and uninsured, to that institution so no one loses any money. And that has been the primary practice for uh, decades now on bank failures. And that's the practice they'll take going forward. In this instance, the shock came so quickly that apparently they didn't have a chance to build, uh, prepare what's known as a, a bid package. That is, they, they know a bank is likely to fail. They get... Uh, other banks uh, to, to see if they're interested in buying the bank. These banks do a quick uh, due diligence on it and they bid to own the bank. And that is probably how future failures will be handled by the FDIC. And that would not require 
any special uh, provision. And, and so that should give uninsured depositors comfort that that is the most likely way uh, that the FDIC will handle future uh, failures. Now, uh, there's you, no one can guarantee that, but that has been the practice and that should be the, probably the assumed process going forward from here. Yeah, your point is a very valid one. It sort of doesn't help with SVB and it doesn't help with the crisis that ensued, but at least everyone's now aware of the problems and looking at all of these banks and a plan will be in place very quickly. Um, I want your Fed hat now, please, because you've said um, clearly that the Federal Reserve is in a tough situation, but inflation is also a tough situation and they need to continue to raise rates. Would you argue that they should continue to raise rates and raise rates at the next meeting next week? Well, uh, I would argue, yes, they should raise rates. The expectation was a quarter point. Then they started talking about 50 basis points. But they should raise rates because their primary issue right now is inflation. And they have dealt with this uh, immediate crisis. And hopefully going forward, people understand um, purchase and assumption. But even if they don't, they need to go forward because if, if they don't go forward, they risk repeating the period of the of the 1970s where they raised rates you had you have a problem they back off inflation rises a little more they raise rates they back off and inflation rises even more and so they started at the beginning of the decade of the 70s with three percent whatever inflation it rose to four and by the end of that decade inflation was 14 percent because they didn't follow through so they really, that's got to be their priority. They're going to have to follow through. Zero interest rates for over a decade created this problem. They have to go through the, and they have to uh, stay the course and bring this inflationary situation down or it will only get worse. So it's like that game of whack-a-mole. What your message is to the Fed is don't end up playing a game of whack-a-mole with inflation and, and interest rates. You just have to stay the that's course. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. They have the tools to handle bank, and there are going to be bank pressures are going to be there. When you raise interest rates as much and you have a long-term asset, you put downward pressure on those assets. So that's something the industry knows, the Fed knows, and they, they have to recognize that. But in the meantime, they better get inflation down or this problem will only become bigger. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the future crisis will only be larger. So take care of your problems uh, in priority and move forward. Yeah, if you think this is bad, you wait. Uh, former FDIC yes, and Fed official. Yeah, agree. Thomas Honig there. So thank you. I appreciate your perspective. Now, from one bank's collapse to struggles at Credit Suisse, the bank has admitted to, quote, material weaknesses in its recent financial reporting. It lost $8 billion in 2022 and scrapped bonuses for its top executive team. Anna Stewart joins me now. The bonus things are, quite frankly, at this point, completely irrelevant, it seems. Um, they're reporting an $8 billion net loss for 2022, but also material weaknesses in the financial reporting. How do we even believe that the losses now that they're reporting are accurate? I mean, it's incredibly difficult. And of course, this comes after scandal after scandal, issues and failures of risk, risk management, issues around corporate governance. So it's really hard, actually, to know how this fits into all of it. 
And when these stories, frankly, will stop, what happens next? Now, according to the bank, according to the report today, they say they failed to adequately identify potential risks to financial statements. And I'll show you some of the statement that they have released to see what you make of it. It says the board of directors of Credit Suisse concluded that this material weakness could result in misstatements of account balances or disclosures that would result in a material misstatement to the annual financial statements of the bank. That said, they say that full year results that they have posted today are unaffected. And they also say that the years of question from the SEC last week, which were 2019 and 2020, they say the statements they released then fairly present in all material aspects their financial situation, i.e. there are no issues there. Very hard to know what to make of all of that and whether that will be enough to assuage the many concerns of clients and investors. Uh, Outflows have continued. They hit a record peak in terms of client outflows in October of last year. Those have continued. They have stabilized, but they certainly haven't reversed. And looking at the share price, down around 2.5% right now. It was down 5% earlier today. It was down 9% yesterday. Uh, with SVP also dragging down the sector. And listen, over the year, this bank has lost 70% of its value. And I don't see it stopping anytime soon at this rate. Yeah, there's a lot of flow here. (laughs) That was my observation. Investors flowing away, depositors flowing away. And if you're cutting bonuses, (laughs) you can probably add talent to that too. And I think that's a big problem. That was one of the first things I thought looking at all this is what must it feel like to work there and how difficult will it be for this bank to retain and recruit talent? The executive team has changed so much. I'm not sure there are many people that have been there for more than a year or two. Uh, The chairman is waiving his $1.6 million share award for his first full year unsurprising. Uh, The board will not be getting their bonuses. Frankly, that is unsurprising as well. There will be a payout for employees, of course, and the board particularly if this restructure works. But that feels a long way off at this stage. And I can't imagine it feels great to work at this bank right now. I would say that a sinking ship is probably a metaphor too far, but it does keep springing leaks. Julia? Yes, it's a leaky ship. Um, Anna Stewart. Thank you very much for that. We'll say no more. Not first move after the break. Welcome back to First Move. A goodwill gesture. That's what Russia is calling its agreement to extend the Ukraine grain export deal for a further 60 days. The current term is set to expire this Sunday. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Zelensky says the country's future could hinge on the outcome of eastern battlegrounds. The situation in the east is very tough and very painful. We need to destroy the enemy's military power, and we will. Bilohorivka and Marinka, Avdivka and Bakhmut, Uledar and Kamyanka, and all other places where our future is being decided, where our future, the future of all Ukrainians, is being fought for. And Ivan Watson sent this report from Kramatorsk. We're in this eastern city of Kramatorsk. As you can see, uh, this is part of the destruction caused by what Ukrainian officials say 
was a Russian strike uh, hitting a three-story apartment building uh, in this town. The authorities say at least one person was killed, another is in critical condition, other people wounded as well. The explosion, eyewitnesses say, happened exactly six hours ago at 8.30 in the morning, and it has shattered windows all throughout the uh, uh, the courtyard here where there are other similar buildings uh, and at a kindergarten, which is just behind where Tom is right now, shattering all the windows there. Uh, one of the remarkable things about what we're seeing right now is no one's complaining. No one is crying. People are just getting on with the work of cleaning up the destruction, of cleaning up what is left of their homes, for example. As you can see, uh, somebody's taking their collection of books uh, out of their apartment, which probably is not going to be livable uh, for the near future right now. Uh, this is not the first time that the city has been hit by a deadly Russian projectile. It has been pounded before by Russian rockets and missiles. Uh, we are located about 25 kilometers away from a very active front line, 15 miles. And I've operated in those areas in the past couple of days. The artillery is thundering kind of around the clock there. There's a huge Ukrainian military presence there. The kindergarten that I visited, thankfully, mercifully, had no children there. They were evacuated. The kindergarten's been closed for some six months. This is part of the reality of what people are living in, Ukrainians, in eastern Ukraine. Welcome back to First Move and a much better tone on U.S. stock markets at this moment. A Tuesday turnaround, perhaps. I don't want to jinx it, but we are seeing improvement, as you can see, across the board in early trade. Crucial to today's lift, I think, and as expected. So no surprises from the consumer price report from the United States. CPI rising 6% overall last month, month over month. Numbers were in line too. Today's data could give the U.S. Federal Reserve some breathing room to hold rates steady next week, given recent pressures on the banking sector. Banks also giving the markets a boost here too. Crucial, the strong bounce that we're seeing in the U.S. regional banks that uh, obviously tumbled during Monday's session, all due to Silicon Valley Bank's contagion fears. First Republic Bank leading the advance, as you can see there. Where are we now? And uh, also important today, affirming up in bond yields after the historic multi-decade falls we saw in the previous session. Even given today's rise, 10-year yields, though, remain well below the almost 4% levels we saw in recent weeks. This will give banks important breathing room too, especially those holding on to treasuries that have lost value, at least on paper, of course. You don't crystallise that loss until you sell them. Plenty for investors to consider today. Let's take a closer look at the inflation data and the Fed's future path. Mark Sandy is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics and joins us now. Mark, it, there's always something happening um, when I speak to you. Lively, I think, would be the term we could use for the past few days. Um, let's assume we're in a black box and looking at the inflation print that we saw today, treble the target for the Federal Reserve. Would that number alone justify raising rates next week? And if so, how much? So, so Julie, you're asking all else being equal. Don't look at the banking Yeah, I want to ignore everything and, else. <laughs> ignore all that. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. I, I think if you just saw that inflation print, uh, you'd say, okay, look, it's still a little on the hot side. The economy is still strong. We're creating a lot of jobs. Unemployment's low. 
uh, yeah, I would raise rates uh, probably a quarter point uh, uh, if I were on the Fed meeting next week. But of course, you know, lots of other stuff going on here. But uh, by itself, yeah, I, I think it would justify a rate increase. Yeah, but I, wa- I just want to do that comparison. So now we get outside of the, the black box and we bring in everything else that's yeah. going on. Do you think they stand pat next week or do you think they move? I do. Yeah, I, I, I do. Right. I mean, the, the the banking system is under a lot of pressure. A lot of that goes back to the uh, very rapid increase in now high interest rates. Uh, and, you know, the Fed took some pretty extraordinary measures here, uh, you know, with the other regulators and the, and the Biden administration. But the Fed set up this credit facility for uh, banks to use, uh, you know, if they need uh, liquidity, if they need uh, cash. So in that context, it's hard to imagine that they would actually raise rates. Why not pause, take, the, take a look around, see what damage this, th- these events in the banking system uh, has created, and then make a decision you know, at the May meeting. So I, I suspect they're, they're not going to raise rates uh, at, the, at the meeting next week. Thomas Honig just said to me, they can't do that. And the reason they can't do that is because inflation is still three times higher than the target. They have to keep going and not risk a whack-a-mole situation where they simply don't get rates high enough to control inflation. But I think one of the interesting questions that the Fed will also be asking them, and correct me if I'm wrong, is what the disinflationary, the potential disinflationary consequences of the bank stress that we've seen, whether it's that particularly for the smaller banks, they decide to lend less, whether consumers, given the concerns about the stability of the banks, perhaps decide to be a little bit more reticent. It's tough to predict at this stage, but, but what are the sort of medium term consequences of, of what we've seen over the past week, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Julia. I, I mean, I, I think you want to see, first of all, there's a lot of uncertainty with regard to what is going to transpire here in the banking system. Uh, I, I think you would want to wait and see, you know, what what is the broader fallout on the uh, on the system? And then, as you point out, what is the impact on uh, lending by by banks and ultimately on what it means for the economy? Uh, you know, it feels like given what regulators and the administration have done and what the Fed has done, that it's going to staunch the, the problems in the system and the economy is going to be fine and we can get back to fighting inflation. But, you know, we've got to figure that all out. It's just too early to, to know precisely. So I think caution would argue to, 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 to take a pause here. And the other thing to, to consider is the economy is slowing, growth is slowing, uh, and inflation is moderating. You know, it's still way too high, as you say, trouble you know, what the inflation uh, target of the Fed is, but it's moving in the right direction. If you go back uh, last summer at the peak, inflation was 9%. It's now 6%. It feels like by the end of this year, it's closer to three. So given all that, I'd say, hey, let's just uh, take take a, a breath here, pause and take a look around and see what the implications are, you know, for the economy here uh, in the next few months. Prioritize, I think the point is, um, as you're saying. Prioritize. Let's just bring up the chart a second of the smaller regional banks, because Fingers crossed what we're seeing, at least in early trademark, is a bounce back. And I'm talking significant double digit bounce backs for some of the, um, the banks that were a concern, some of the smaller regional banks. That's the top line that you can see in front of you. I mean, for an example, Mark, First Republic's up 60 percent. So it's rewinding the losses that we saw yesterday. Do you think we've seen the worst? I know it's tough to call. I, I think, yeah, I, I think so. Right. I mean, given mm. the the very aggressive action uh, by uh, by the Federal Reserve, by the FDIC, by the Biden administration and the U- U.S. Treasury. 
you know, what the, what what actions are saying is, you know, the the government has the banking systems back and will do whatever is necessary to ensure that the problems in SVB and Signature Bank don't bleed out into the rest of the banking system. So, yeah, I think that's that's right. That's ex- exactly what I would uh, would have uh, hoped for and and expect is that the that uh, we see these bank stocks. Uh, the, the, the government is saying with you know crystal clear voice that you know they've got the bank banking systems back and they're not going to let it fail and not go down a, a, an untoward path. So uh, it makes a lot of sense that these stocks are coming back today. You know, I've lost count in the number of um, the number of people over the past four days who've asked me about the stability of the banks, what they should do with their deposits, whether their money should be in a big bank versus a small bank, whether they should have money in a number of different banks. They're all reasonable questions, I think, to be asking at this point. Mark, have you also been asked these questions numerous times by friends, by family? And I, I just wondered your, wanted your wisdom. What, what have you been saying to them? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, Julie, I, I, absolutely. I mean, people are nervous and, you know, I, I, reasonably so. But, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, if your money is in a bank, depository institution, a credit union, you know, you it's money good. You're, it, it, you're not going to have any problem getting that money out of the bank, whether it's under the 250K, you know, FDIC insurance limit, which that is for most Americans, you know, uh, more than adequate. Uh, but even if you have deposits that are more than that in a bank, uh, you will be fine. Uh, the, the government has, uh, as I said earlier, you're back. So uh, no reason to worry. Now, now having said that, you know, it is a reminder that, you know, it would be it would be wise to have your uh, if you have a, uh, if you're fortunate enough to have a, a savings of more than 250K, you want to keep that uh, dispersed across the banking system. You don't want to have it uh, all your money in one bank. Uh, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do that in the in the context of what you're observing now. But uh, at this point in time, um uh, if your money is at, in a in a bank, uh, it's a credit union. It's money good. You're, you're going to get your money, uh, no problem. Yeah, I, all I would say is we just saw a period of time where people couldn't access their money, even though if it was protected. So just make sure you've got access to quick cash, even just for a short period of time, and then keep calm. Um, Mark, very quickly. Last time we spoke, we were debating. No landing, hard landing, soft landing. You said slow session, which was my new word. I have about 30 seconds. Does uh, any of this change the slow session that you predicted? No, I feel pretty no. good about things. Uh, you know, obviously, when rates are rising, you know, uh, that puts pressure on the economy, on the financial system, and, and it starts to shake. Uh, and that's what we've been observing today in the last couple of days. Uh, but the system held is holding together well. And uh, again, we've got the, the uh, administration and regulators on the case. And that makes me feel confident that, uh, you know, the economy is going to struggle here as because rates are high and they're going to go higher with inflation. In. But uh, uh, when we look through it all, we're going to get through without uh, an actual, actual economic recession or downturn. So actually, you're shaken but not stirred even if the markets were a little right. Well, you know, that's so funny you say that. It's so funny you say that. I was thinking, <laughs> roll, you were shaking, shaken but not stirred. I, I get it. I, I That didn't dawn on me, but I was thinking, you know, the, remember the rock and roll music? Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> Mark Bond, Zandi. Thank you for that. <laughs> Take care.
All right, coming up on the show, submarines under the spotlight, how China is reacting to a U.S. defense deal with Austria and Britain next. Welcome back to First Move. China condemning a security deal between the UK, the United States and Australia to supply the Australian military with nuclear-powered submarines. The three countries have completely ignored the concerns of the international community and gone further down a wrong and dangerous road. Well, Ripley joins us now. I think it's no surprise here that Beijing would react with concern. Yeah, and react even before the official announcement was made. Of course, it wasn't a surprise. They've been saying that this is going to be a pretty big deal, and it certainly is a game changer in a lot of respects, Julia, when it comes to, uh, you know, supplying nuclear submarine technology to Australia that in 25 years will transform their capabilities and in the short term allow for the rotation of U.S. uh, and U.K. nuclear submarines into Australia, therefore, you know, bolstering uh, the underwater deterrence that the United States still holds out quite an edge uh, in the submarine space over China, Julia. Granted, you know, China's making a lot of progress, uh, but submarines, aircraft carriers, they're still decades behind the U.S. And so this certainly uh, presents a problem uh, for China and their naval ambitions, which is why you heard such sharp rhetoric uh, from the top all the way down. Xi Jinping and, uh, you know, every MOFA spokesperson uh, basically saying that the United States is trying to contain China. But the U.S. believes that China's global influence in military movements pose a threat to democracy, uh, democracy here in Taiwan and in other places around the world. Uh, so that's why, in addition to this submarine deal, you also have uh, the U.S., basically appearing to prepare for a long-term struggle with China, expanding its military presence in the Philippines, uh, encouraging Japan to expand its military, to expand its own military after years of pacifism, and also selling billions of dollars, an unprecedented number of weapons to this self-governing democracy here, Taiwan, Julia. Chinese fighter Chinese fighter jets screaming over its skies, military ships sailing off its coast, daily occurrences for Taiwan, living under the constant threat of a possible Chinese attack. Beijing's communist leadership claims Taiwan as part of its territory, despite having never ruled it. Tensions rising across the Taiwan Strait since Nancy Pelosi's visit in August. The first visit by a U.S. House Speaker to the island in 25 years. We will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan. Who can forget China's response last year, those days of large-scale military drills encircling the island, firing ballistic missiles over Taiwan? Analysts fear this may be repeated again next month. Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, expected to meet U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So are you saying that that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment to do that. But the U.S. has reasons to worry about a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, protecting valuable semiconductor chips. Taiwan is a global leader in semiconductors, tiny chips that power everything from computers to cars. The island producing 70% of global supply. Defending democracy. Losing democratic Taiwan to communist China would shatter U.S. credibility in the Indo-Pacific region. 
protecting U.S. alliances, Asian countries would face an even more powerful China, a heavily surveilled police state with little freedom of speech. The stakes are indeed high, but experts do believe there's reason for optimism. Do you think the U.S. and China are headed in a positive, optimistic direction? The idea that conflict between the U.S. and China is inevitable, I, I, I strongly disagree with that. Meaningful channels of communication between the U.S. and the PRC, uh, that helps us minimize uh, unknowns. It helps us minimize confusion and misunderstandings. And ultimately, that, that, that's good for Taiwan. U.S.-China relations on a downward spiral since that suspected Chinese spy balloon bursting months of Beijing-D.C. diplomacy. As two Democratic allies, the U.S. and Taiwan get even closer. Taiwan's president and the third in line to the U.S. presidency meeting on American soil. As tensions escalate, all eyes will be on China. And where is this all headed? Well, forgive me for the confusion there, because that was entirely my fault. I was going to pick up on what we were saying there about um, China and the United States and Australia and, and just make the point that it comes at a time when, when China's talking about building the military into a great wall of steel with potential profound consequences for the, the likes of Taiwan, which has become a sort of economic and geopolitical pawn in many ways between all of these nations, given the importance of semiconductors, yeah. as, as you and I have discussed. So it was interesting to hear that comment there with the gentleman saying, look, you know, despite the deterioration in relations and certainly the rhetoric heating up, there's perhaps less caution than you might imagine of, of the risk of, of Taiwan or conflict, let's call it that, over Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, look, and it really depends on the time frame for a potential move on Taiwan, which China has signaled that it's going to do, although they haven't signaled when it will happen. They say they want it to happen peacefully. Uh, the Taiwanese people... Uh, have said in overwhelming numbers they do not want to be absorbed by China. So that makes a peaceful uh, absorption, takeover, if you will, uh, out of the question. Uh, and that raises the question then, OK, so is it going to be military and, and when? Uh, so the U.S. is sending weapons in. Uh, these, this, uh, this submarine deal is kind of more of a long-term strategic uh, plan to counter China, China's Navy. It might not have any immediate impact given uh, the naval situation across the Taiwan Strait, Julia. But even, you know, the, these other potential issues that are coming up that could escalate things even further, the U.S. Uh, still talking about new curbs on U.S. companies investing in China. You have uh, the question of whether they're going to restrict or block altogether TikTok. And, of course, China pondering whether it's going to start sending lethal weapons to Russia in Ukraine. So there is just a lot right now <laughs> to, to yeah. sort through. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, we're talking about these um, submarines being seaworthy, I think, by the late 2030s. Um, to your point, and you mapped it out perfectly. Um, goodness knows where we are at that point. Um, thank you for joining us so late in the evening. And thank you for putting up with me, just generally. Will <laughs> Ripley, we appreciate you. Thank you. This is Yatsik. He lives in a small Polish city, and he's a bit of a nerd. Honestly, I have, uh, in, in my factory, we have uh, more than 100 geeks. I'm one of them. This is what I love about my job. Jacek's work involves quite a few robots, like this one. Do you have a QR code? All right, thank you. And he deals with a lot of data. <laughs> This all means that Yatsik loves his job, which isn't just great for him, but for the millions of parents that rely on baby food and formula worldwide. 
we are producing to, for babies. What we are doing here really impacts the life of these little people. Yatsik's factory makes baby food and formula, which is exported to over 90 countries. He works at Danone, a global food processing company that manufactures everything from dairy products to drinking water in 169 factories worldwide. And a few years back, the company asked Yatsik to lead his plant through a digital transformation, overhauling pretty much every process to incorporate artificial intelligence and robotics. But this request came with a catch. Solutions achieved here had to be scalable for the wider company. Danone gave us so-called license to fail, but duty to learn. At the plant, Yatsik's team kicked things off by assessing needs. And then they got to work. We had like 25 pilots. We divided them in three categories. A connected shop floor, automation, and big data. Really big. Every single day we are creating terabytes of data. The thing is how to analyze it in a correct way. Upgrading to smart factories comes with countless benefits, according to experts. But it's not all good news. In a 2021 survey of over 950 smart factories worldwide, nearly three quarters reported experiencing cyber attacks within 12 months. For Yatsik's plan, however, the hard work paid off. He says his team of 19 boosted efficiency by about 12% and saved roughly 3 million euros in the process. It was great to observe how it's growing, how it's from small idea turning into something big with very tangible results. These results earned the team a prestigious award from the World Economic Forum. Yatsik says the most rewarding part of it all has been embarking on this journey together with his fellow geeks. I made it all with all these people who are here when we feel like family. So to be here, to know that you were part of it, it's a big thing. I overtalked again. So that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.